you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. We have started a new year in the life of the church. We finished our year with Jesus, 52 weeks in the Gospels, most of it spent in the book of Matthew. If you know me, you know I love the Old Testament, so my heart would love to jump right back into the Old Testament, but uh, I've decided to, we're going to do a, a four-week bonus in the Gospels, uh, there's uh, these just passages that have grabbed us. They're, they're in the lectionary. They're assigned from uh, decades ago. And they've come together in this season in our, our history, in this time of uh, our life as the church, in a pretty powerful way. We're calling these four weeks the identity of the Messiah. We're looking at uh, who the Messiah is. There's lots of ways to talk about uh, Jesus. I took a class my last semester in Christology. The person and work of Christ was the class name. And we looked at all the different ways you could talk about Jesus. You could talk about Jesus uh, as he's recorded in, say, the book of Matthew versus how he's recorded in Mark or Luke or John. We could look at uh, Jesus as Paul talks about him or as Peter talks about him. We could look at uh, the person of Jesus or uh, the person of the Christ. We can look at Uh, Christology through the lens of different Christologies, so feminist Christology, African Christology, black American Christology, uh, or frankly most of the writing is uh, 19th and 20th century German white dude Christology. This is is all the different ways uh, we can look at the person of Jesus. Uh, A way that I have found intriguing is to look at uh, how scripture uses titles. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain. He is the Messiah. He is uh, the son of God. He is the Lord. He is the one who baptizes with the spirit. And this week he is the son of man. Or as the CEB translates it, the human one. This uh, passage from the gospel of Mark uses Jesus' favorite self-designation. The son of man or the human one uh, to talk about himself uh, we're, we're jumping from Matthew to Mark, and so we need to set our, our kind of boundaries of what we're looking at. Matthew's focus has been uh, to, to make an argument that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel's hope. Mark seems to serve a whole different purpose. Mark is our earliest gospel, written probably somewhere before 70 AD, uh, before the temple is destroyed. It's written uh, most likely by John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, uh, an early traveling partner of Paul. It's probably written in Rome. It's, uh, Papias records that it is uh, Peter's recounting of the Jesus story before his crucifixion that he has kind of told John Mark his version of the events. Uh, Mark records them for the church in Rome who are experiencing great persecution under the uh, Caesars of the day. Uh, whereas G- uh, Matthew seems to be an apology for Jesus, uh, Mark seems to be an invitation to trust. This Jesus who suffered understands your suffering. 
Just as Jesus' suffering validates his Messiahship, your suffering validates you as the church, Rome. And it is a fast-paced book. The favorite uh, conjunction in this book is then immediately, it's, it's just time after time, immediately they went here, immediately they did this. Uh, the book of Matthew starts with the begats, right? Uh, so-and-so begat so-and-so. It goes on for a whole chapter. Luke spends like three chapters in the beautiful Christmas story that gets painted under ornaments. John has this grand philosophical treatise on the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Mark just starts with John going, hey, look, he's coming. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is baptized, calling disciples, and his ministry starts. We are not three chapters into the book of Mark before he is bumping into conflict with the authorities, the, the book becomes kind of this uh, rapid-fire picture of Jesus in conflict with uh, civil Roman authorities and with religious Jewish authorities. And he teaches, and he does miracles, and quite rapidly, we see him back in Jerusalem. He is coming into this Passion Week, into the events that will eventually lead to his death. Ma- uh, Mark doesn't waste time getting right to the nitty-gritty where Jesus comes in the scene and, and is uh, looking over many of the same parables we've talked about in the last few weeks about wait and watch and prepare, uh, let's steward things well. Uh, and then he looks out and tells the story to his disciples. He looks and sees this widow giving her last two coins to the temple. And, and uh, many times we preach this as like a, look how we should do stewardship. You should give your last two coins to the church. I'm sorry, that's not what this passage is about. This passage is a critique that... The religious leaders are allowing this woman to use what the thing says should be her money for sustenance to build up their empire. Jesus looks and he declares that uh, before you know it, this whole thing is going to be torn down. This temple is going to fall. This is, this is more, uh, more shocking than if we said, Andover is going to fall to the ground tomorrow. It's more shocking than if we said the White House is going to fall to the ground tomorrow. This is the locus of Israel's hope. That once again Yahweh will dwell in their midst in the temple and things will be all right. The promises of Abraham will come about and and things will be okay. And so Jesus says, no, this thing is going to fall to the ground, this corrupt generation. And if that wasn't enough, he jumps into this chapter we're in today. Uh, Sarah started reading at verse 24. I'm going to try to slow down because I know I tend to read quickly when I give you context. Brad is smiling because this is a routine criticism. John Elliott, if you're watching, I'm going to try to slow down. As Jesus left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What sign will show that these things are about to come to an end? So you hear their question, right? What are the signs? What are are we to watch out for? What is the trigger? What is the alarm, like Brad was saying, that we can know uh, that this is going to happen? Jesus says, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many people will come in in my name saying, I am the one. They will deceive many people. When you hear of wars and reports of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen, but this isn't the end yet. 
Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other and there will be earthquakes and famines in all sorts of places. These things are just the beginnings of the sufferings associated with the end. Watch out for yourselves. People will hand you over to councils. You'll be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me so that you can testify before them. First, the good news must be proclaimed to all the nations. When they haul you in and hand you over, don't worry. Don't worry ahead of time about what to answer or to say. Instead, say whatever is given to you at the moment, for you aren't doing the speaking, but the Holy Spirit is. Brothers and sisters will hand each, over, hand each other over to death. A father will turn against his children. Children will rise up against their parents and have them executed. Everyone will hate you because of my name, but whoever stands firm until the end will be saved. When you see the disgusting and destructive things stand, standing where it shouldn't be, then those in Judea must escape to the mountains. Those on the roof shouldn't come down or enter the house to grab anything. Those in the field shouldn't come back to grab their clothes. How terrible it will be at those times for women who are pregnant and for women who are nursing their children. Pray that this doesn't happen in the winter. In those days there will be great suffering, such as the world has never seen before and will never see again. If the Lord hadn't shortened that time, no one would be rescued. But for the sake of the chosen ones, the ones whom God chose, he has cut short the time. Then if someone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. False Christ, false Christ and false prophets will appear, and they will offer signs and wonders in order to deceive, if possible, those whom God has chosen. But you, watch out. I've told you everything ahead of time. This is just the setting the stage for Jesus' answer. This great tribulation where Fleeing to the wilderness seems like the best thing. This time when families turn upon each other, this time where the community rebels against one another, this time where everyone is handed over, where seemingly war is abounding. That's our context for this passage that Sarah read that begins, In those days, after the suffering of that time, the sun will become dark and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is apocalyptic imagery. This is the kind of stuff that we see in Revelation, the language of Daniel, the language of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. This is theophany, God appearing language. God uh, has done some kind little appearing uh, uh, in, in the tabernacle, but his common way of appearing is in a storm. And this storm is going to be like none other. The earth will shake and the stars will fall from heaven. The planets and heavenly bottles will be shaken. And then... They will see the human one, the son of man, coming in the clouds with great power and splendor. Then he will send the angels to gather together his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the end of the earth to the end of heaven. If this passage didn't seem weird enough already with this imagery and this language, we have to get the context that these people would have immediately gotten. This language of the human one, the son of man, is, it should just ring bells to the, to the hearer here. That Jesus is identifying with the human one of Daniel 7. This vision that Daniel has had out in Babylonian exile. This vision of God making things right. In this vision, uh, there is the ancient of days. This is the representation of God, God's self, of Yahweh uh, reigning on high. Who will ultimately drive out the four kings. We we believe these probably represent in this vision the kings of Babylon, uh, the, the Mede king, the Persians, and the Greeks. This 
ancient of days who is going to finally knock down the principalities and powers and allow God's reign to happen. This ancient of days who then will invite the human one, the son of man, to take his throne and reign for his angels to come across the earth in power and glory and to draw together God's people. Uh, most of my life when I hear the, the Son of Man, I just think it's Jesus' catchy little way of talking about himself. This, whenever we hear Son of Man, we hear world-changing, life-altering, landscape-defining, apocalyptic, you-cannot-be-the-same language. When the Son of Man comes in glory, he will gather with his angels his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the ends of earth to the ends of heaven. After this time of tribulation, this son of man that they've been wanting is, is, is coming in glory to deal with the problems of the earth. And, and as there were the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans, now there will be one reigning king. The son of man will reign over all and will draw together his people from the ends of the earth. Learn a parable from the fig tree. After its branch becomes tender and it sprouts new leaves, then you know that summer is near. In that same way, when you see these things happening, you know that he's near at the door. I assure you that this generation won't pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. How many of us are comfortable with uh, the growing cycles of the fig tree? Brad? Not, not very much, right? Many of us who didn't grow up on farms and fields aren't really rooted in, uh, well, if we see this thing happening, we know this. But for this crowd, the, the imagery of a tender branch shooting out on the fig tree is a clear sign of what is happening in the life cycle of the agricultural uh, landscape. And so Jesus says to them, uh, just like that's a sign, these are the signs. When, when this great tribulation happens across the world, when, when you suffer on my behalf, we're heading towards the Son of Man coming. When uh, things look terrible, that's your sign that the Son of Man is coming in glory. But then Jesus throws us for a little bit of loot, but nobody knows when the day or the hour will come. Not the angels of heaven and not the Son. Only the Father knows. Watch out. Stay alert. You don't know when this time is coming. As if someone took a trip, left the household behind, and put the servants in charge, giving each one a job to do, and told the doorkeeper to stay alert. Therefore, you stay alert. You don't know when the head of the household will come, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows in the early morning or at daybreak. Don't let him show up when you weren't expecting and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. You can get why people throughout church history have tried to connect these events described here to a certain date, right? Well, we see, we see wars awaging. We see... Christians being persecuted. We see the breakdown of the nuclear family. Clearly, Jesus is coming in 1912 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? We want to know. Uh, Brad's alarm metaphor. We know what comes after it. Uh, we, we set our alarms, right? 
We know what they're set for. We know the time. If you're like my wife, Felsha, you literally set 16 of them in your iPhone every night. One for 5 o'clock, 5.02, 5.06, 5.08. And then you also hit the snooze button. Uh, you know when these alarms are set for. We want to, to know because we, we want to be ready. Or we want it to be over with. Maybe the greatest disappointment of the early church was that Jesus didn't come back in that first generation. There's this eminence in the Gospel of Mark, and, and Paul writes with this, uh, this vision that, uh, that Christ is coming soon. Uh, this whole discussion of singleness becomes problematic because so many people said, well, Christ is coming back. What's the purpose of having kids? And so the church even has to begin to develop a, a theology of marriage and singleness and wrestle with what is the purpose of sex and, and how does procreation function within this new kingdom of heaven because they were all disappointed that Jesus hadn't come back. But every time somebody tries to offer us a date, we have to remember that Jesus said even he doesn't know when he is coming back. Jesus, the Son of Man, coming in glory with his angels to gather from the four corners of the earth, from heavens and earth, those who were chosen. We could spend a whole series talking about chosenness, but chosen is those who have responded to God and, and believed and who God has foreknown would uh, respond, that, that he is coming for that crowd. And sometimes we grow weary and we just want him to come. We want to to jump straight forward to the time when there is no more pain and there is no more sorrow and there is no more suffering. But yet we don't know. We wait. And so Jesus asks us to wait well. John Mark and his gospel would expect us to be reading the whole of the gospel and not just this one passage. So we would know what it means to wait well. We would, we would steward what we've been given. We would live a life of holiness. We would endure suffering and do all these things. We, we would not flannel graph this one moment as the picture of Jesus coming back in clouds and us going, going uh, with him. This would be a, a call to something dramatic and radical. This uh, sets aside flannel graph Jesus and it, it, it paints a picture of Jesus who looks nothing like the domesticated Jesus of American political religion. It's a picture of Jesus who wants, who wants you to know that suffering looks nothing, looks nothing like what you want it to be but it is. It's a reality. It's the uh, expectation of the church. Jesus paints a picture that it's not going to look really great to have to take up your cross and deny yourself and to follow him. He paints a picture that just as he suffered, the church is going to suffer. We want to turn Jesus into uh, the, the moral sage of his day who offers us some keys to a happy life. Uh, and, and I'm not naive. I would love the prosperity gospel, right? It'd be a whole lot easier to preach, to stand up here and go, if you love Jesus, he'll make you happy, wealthy, and wise. It seems to say that if you love Jesus, you're going to endure great suffering as you wait and hope and anticipate. 
And it's fitting that this designation is Jesus' preferred, and it's fitting that this is the designation that we come to on this first Sunday of Advent. Jesus calls us to wait well, to to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to anticipate the full range of what is to come, to to anticipate that alarm clock sounding, to, to look out and name that some of these signs are already happening, and yet we don't know the hour or the day that even he doesn't, but that ultimately he will come again in glory and gather up all those who love him, who are called by his name, and who have responded to his grace. I'm convinced more than ever that there is no task greater than us availing ourselves of the means of grace, for it's the only way that we can wait well. If we are not uh, diving into Scripture, if we are not uh, seeking the Lord's face in prayer, if we are not uh, worshiping with the fullness of our heart, if we are not uh, taking the sacraments, if we are not fasting and going to our knees in prayer, uh, we, we have no hope of waiting well. We will either give in to being part of the problem or we will fall asleep. This Advent season hits differently than any other Advent season I've ever experienced. This season where we we look back at a first arrival and we anticipate a second arrival where we wait in the midst of all that is going on. Our world feels a little more like what Jesus is talking about that we're going to have to sit and live through as signs of what is to come. And so stay alert. Hope. Wait. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we we so often uh, form your son Christ into our image. We look at the Jesus of the American church. We pick our favorite passages. And we settle with feel-good faith. Because it feels good, God. Today, wreck our heart, Lord, with this vision you have given us for uh, suffering as you have suffered. And hoping upon hope. For when you come again in glory, when you and your angels come and gather those whom you have called from across the corners of the earth. Lord, stir in us a love of your means of grace. Encounter us in ways that we can't help but delight in your presence. And shape and form us to be a people who bear witness to faithful suffering. People who uh, glorify in waiting. And the people who honor you with our hope. We love you and we praise you. It's in the name of Christ, your Son, the Son of Man, we pray. Amen. Amen.